Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Michelle and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. 
MSCCCSLPCLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culver Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for an incredibly special episode. Today, Erin and I have the pleasure of interviewing Jacqueline Peterson, MHI Chief Executive Officer with Feeding Matters, and Kyler Romeo, M-O-T-O-T-R-L-S-C-F-E-S, IBCLC, Director of Strategic Initiatives for Feeding Matters, all to get us in a joyful mood for the ninth International Pediatric Feeding Disorder Conference, which is happening in like literally a matter of days. And in case you didn't know, it's going to be on demand until May 31st, 2022. But before we go full steam ahead, I need to set the pace for today's conversation. So humor me for a moment or two, all right? I am willing to bet that right now, a fair few of you are probably listening in your car. You're worried about making it through that stoplight because you're running late again, or at least I normally am, to your next speech therapy session. Or maybe you're listening on your lunch break while fervently trying to type up the notes from like this morning, the last two days, maybe the last week. I get it. I see you. I feel you. Aaron and I are you. But my worry is that in this hustle and bustle, we lose sight over why we are doing the thing that it is that we've been called to do. We drift in our purpose for empowering the child, that little one, and their caregivers on their healing journey because we're completely freaking overwhelmed. And y'all, that sucks and I get it. We get so wrapped up in our details of surviving productivity that we forget our why. And our why should be the evidence-based empowerment of the patient that we serve and their caregiver as part of an interprofessional practice team that absolutely needs to include 
and occupational therapists. Let me say that again. We, the SLPs in the room, do not own feeding. Honestly, the OTs don't own feeding either. The patients own their own journey as well as the caregiver that walks hand in hand alongside them on that path. And you better believe that Aaron and I truly in our heart of hearts recognize and respect that our teams are only as strong as we make them. And they better include an occupational therapist whenever possible to find one in your geographic like region. Because I get it. They're hard to find sometimes. Because it is only through the power of a dynamic and loving team that our patients are truly set for success for their mountaintops. And that's our why, that mountaintop. So I feel really strongly about this. Erin feels really strongly about this. And on that note, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy you're here. So happy to be here. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having us. Yes, thank you. The best way to start a Friday morning in my house. <laughs> okay, so we're all different time zones. So wait, what time zone are y'all? We're in Arizona, but uh, right now it's Pacific time. And so we're about three hours different from you, I think, Michelle. So it's a 7.15 a.m., bright, early, sunny desert morning. I have it's Betsy's. We've already woken up, crafted. I've had my hot glue gun out, ran two miles, gone to the coffee shop. And y'all, I have a praise report. This morning, I found out both of my sisters are pregnant and we have one coming with a set of twins. And this has been a nine-year journey for one. So if I just randomly burst into tears in today's episode, this is a God moment and it's been a good day. So yay. (laughs) For sure. That's amazing. That's so exciting. Well, you tell her I'm another twin mama. I have identical twins and it is just, it's such a blessing. It's a study in science. I love watching how they grow up and are genetically identical. And it's just a testament, right? To how we have one, we have a perception of how something's going to go. And then we're surprised in the best way. So congratulations. Yay. Okay, wait. And y'all, that's Kyler talking. Kyler has the twins, right? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) Wait, twin girls or twin boys? I have two 11-year-old identical twin girls and a 12-year-old singleton boy. So all smushed together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's basically Irish triplets right there. (laughs) That's where you go. My mother was an (laughs) O'Gara. My family's a Paxton and a Wood, so we're Irish Cherokee and Patawamic. So I'm not um, two Native American tribes and Irish. It's all right. I burn like an Irish woman, so go team. And Jacqueline, you have you're a boy mom, right? I am. I'm a boy mom to one crazy but so amazing two and a half year old son, Charlie. Oh God, you're in potty training stage. <laughs> yeah, we haven't gone there yet because I'm a little bit nervous too. But yeah, it is the next mountain to climb. Okay, I have one fabulous story, and then we'll go. But favorite birthday memory of all time: we went to a hibachi restaurant for Goose. He turned four, and the boys are two years apart. And we came back from the hibachi restaurant, and Goose had food poisoning. So we're driving as fast as we can through downtown Columbia, USC, Gamecock football traffic. Meanwhile, Bear is screaming at the top of his lungs because he has to pee because we've been potty training. 
Well, we rush in the door. Goose runs straight to the toilet to proceed to vomit everywhere. I grabbed the training potty up that apparently my husband failed to dump earlier and went to bring it over Goose to set it down so that Bear could tinkle in it and proceeded to pour pee all over Goose, who was simultaneously throwing up. And then Bear missed it and peed all over the living room carpet. So... Good luck, friend. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I've just avoided it all together so far. <laughs> oh my God, my husband. Oh, it was that was the worst birthday present ever. Like yeah. Christian was all crying and cussing. And yeah, that was good times. Good times. Okay. All right. So can y'all kind of Jacqueline, can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into feeding matters and became involved? Sure, definitely. So my background is actually nonprofit management and then healthcare innovation and systems practice. And so when I did my graduate work in healthcare innovation, I was looking for a new career opportunity that kind of met my nonprofit love, as well as my love of like healthcare innovation and kind of doing things a little bit different. And that's when I discovered Feeding Matters by an old college colleague of mine. And they were looking for someone to run their volunteer program and help them write grants. And I was lucky enough to get that position. Before then, I had not heard about feeding issues, feeding problems, any way we described feeding, you know, 10 years ago. And once I found out about Feeding Matters and our mission, I just completely fell in love with the mission and have been solely committed ever since. And so I joined the organization almost nine years ago, and I have just slowly done different things and tried out different things within the organization. And I took over the CEO role during the pandemic when we had a change of leadership because our old CEO, you know, she had to be at home with her teenage son and her teenage daughter. They needed her more than Feeding Matters did. And someone else could be CEO, but not everyone else could be mom. And so I was honored to be invited to that role as an interim CEO and then became the permanent position shortly thereafter. And this has just been a wild journey. And I am so excited to see what the field of feeding has done and where this community has taken the field of feeding. You know, even, you know, nine plus, even longer than that years ago. It's so different now. And that's just to me unbelievable and incredibly exciting. Well, honestly, the world of feeding has fundamentally been changed because of feeding matters. It's because, y'all, I, can't, I mean, you know, Aaron and I share this in how many episodes, but we have the ICD-10 codes for chronic and acute pediatric feeding disorder because of the interprofessional volunteer work done and completed for years by Feeding Matters. So we're at this stage because of volunteers who listen, chime in, and tithe their time. So, Oh, for sure. For sure. And really taking that time to work together and to work with people that maybe feel differently about how treatment goes, but you're able to listen to one another, collaborate and make something beautiful out of it. Yes, absolutely. Now, Kyler, you're an OT who has all the fancy alphabet soup after their names. So you're going to have to tell everybody what they mean, but can you tell us your alphabet soup and then how you got involved with Feeding Matters? Oh, absolutely. So goodness, the alphabet soup. Isn't that the funniest thing, right? That you go through and you get your certifications and pasture boards and those sorts of things. And when you get, I'm old, I've been doing this, you know, almost 20 years. 
you get a collection and then you have to kind of like pick and choose which ones do you really want to represent you? And so I hope these are really like what represent me and what I'm trying, you know, what I love to do professionally. But let's see my journey. I am from Texas. I actually grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. So we have that in common. Yes. That was I had no idea. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. That was my childhood home. And we kind of like worked our way around the, you know, the the South and ended up in Texas. And after school, I'm a Longhorn. I went to UT Austin, but after going through my graduate program, you know, it's that first opportunity, right? Where you're trying to pick your clinicals. And I was just blessed to come from a, a very strong practical program. And we had a NICU rotation that we could compete for, like academically compete for in Texas down in the Houston Medical Center. And I honestly was like the least likely, as voted by my peers, you know, the least likely to do pediatrics. I was tracking to do burns. I really wanted to specialize in burns at a particular hospital in the medical center. And I even did, you know, I got certified in massage and all those things to do while you're in grad school so that I could do lymphedema and do learn lymphedema and other techniques anyway. But then my little ears perked up when I heard about this NICU rotation and I applied for that rotation and did get that rotation as part of, you know, as one of my clinicals, one of my higher level clinicals. And then I never left. I never left the world of feeding. So I was really lucky to start in a level four NICU as my clinical rotation. And I was part of an OT PT team because they're the feeding specialists for occupational therapists. And we worked collaboratively with our PTs. And then we would bring in all three disciplines when we would transition children to community and outpatient care. And so we just really had this wonderful interaction but that just took me down the path to stay specialized in feeding, eating, and swallowing. And so the military brought us to Tucson, Arizona, you know, in the same state as Feeding Matters. And I had done other things like in my professional career, like I had overseen OTs, PTs, and SLPs for clinical practice as part of like a, a statewide home health agency. And working with the payers for pay for performance models for clinical innovation. And so that really gave me, I think, a really nice background in understanding the scope of practice, as well as the contributions of all the disciplines and how when those disciplines came together collectively, that is truly how we had our most successful outcomes with our clients and with our families. And that really spoke to the person on the other side, which was the third party payer. You know, everyone, even though we come about it at a different angle, we have this shared goal that we want to improve overall health of our of the population of the country. And whether, you know, you're talking about one child and one family or you're perhaps representing, you know, a larger institution or the payer and you're representing a whole constituent. What was really reassuring about those experiences is seeing that collective efforts can can truly make a change. And so then the military brought us back into Tucson and my feeding history here also was, I had the benefit of starting an outpatient feeding specialty clinic with 
a group of OT partners, including Marsha Dunkline, who's a well-known OT, that's a feeding specialist. He's a goddess. Yes. <laughs> it was so funny when I met her actually volunteering in Mexico, and I did not know that she was the Marsha, you know, and I had been talking to her. <laughs> And I thought, this is a very dynamic woman, right? And she had later called me and said, where did you learn to do what you're doing? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm like a new grad, green, you know, out of school. Anyway, so we developed like a professional relationship. And it wasn't until later I realized that's the person whose picture is on the back of my textbook. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally from the textbook. But doesn't that speak to the volumes of her grace that she, like some people, yes, she's a real human. Y'all, she's always like that. Just the most genuine. Also, please, please, please go check out her book. It's Get Permission Approach by Marsha Dunkline and it's available on Amazon. I highly recommend her book. I have a copy. Erin has a copy. I may or may not have purchased copies for my students for graduation gifts because again, OTs and SLPs were on the same team, man. She wrote Pre-Feeding Skills with Suzanne Evans-Morris. So, you know, the huge text, that's their big text that they wrote. And then they did the homemade blended. So they've just done so many things in collaboration with other disciplines. But so we started this clinic in Tucson. And so it was just a wonderful experience to serve the community in a different way. And she has been my bridge to feeding matters. So she's very involved from a volunteer, you know, contribution perspective and brought me in on some of the volunteer opportunities and projects. And that's how I got to know the organization is from the side of a volunteer and working with the AIMS initiative, which really opened my eyes to how when people come together, not only like we, I talked about earlier, professionally, we come together to serve the client, but feeding matters is bringing people together to change the system. And I thought, gosh, that is really how we as individuals can make a difference because we're working collaboratively with a group that's willing to give us a pathway to collaborate. So I, through my volunteer work, got to know some people from Feeding Matters. And when there was an opportunity for them to expand in their strategic initiative side, then I was lucky enough that they thought of me. And that is how I came into the organization as the director a strategic initiatives. And kind of during that time, I also had transitioned back into the NICU and I continue to work three days a week doing my clinical practice in the NICU. I'm again, full circle, part of an OT feeding specialty and PT team within our NICU here. So that's a very long explanation, probably longer than you were hoping for. It's the path. And that's how I've been lucky enough to have a hand in supporting and contributing to feeding matters while also being able to maintain my clinical skills. Yeah. But you talked on the fact that where OTs can be. And okay. So y'all, I came across feeding matters years ago from two fabulous Virginia SLPs who I met through their private practice. Y'all know them. They volunteer and they talked about feeding matters and the caregiver approach. And let me phrase this from, I came from a killer grad program, right? I mean, James Madison, I bleed purple. It is a 
knock down, drag them out, amazing program. They focus on feeding and swallowing. And I had exposure, but when I came to South Carolina, regional variations, there were only two grad programs here in South Carolina at the time that I moved south. And because they didn't focus on feeding and swallowing, and let's be fair, if you're an SLP, you know how scant that is within the academic coursework, how rare it is to find a clinical practicum on campus that treats PFD and swallowing. And so when I came to South Carolina, I was forced to be almost a silo clinician because there is one OT program for our entire state and two, at the time, grad programs for SLPs. This is isolating. Mm, Yeah. And Feeding Matters was a breath of fresh air because I went from feeling like I had to be the one person driving the team to all this organization that has, and Jacqueline, you'll have to talk about the Power at Two program, but like has resources that put the caregiver in the driver's seat. And that was also refreshing because there's so many organizations out there that tout themselves as, you know, I can say this, y'all probably can't say this, but they tout themselves as the PFD gurus and all this stuff. But like, there's no caregiver on the team. There's no emphasis empowering the caregiver. And I am a mom first and an SLP second. And it is a completely different thing when somebody tells me what to do for my child versus when somebody asks me and truly seeks to understand my knowledge base about my own child and then offers their professional tools and resources to coach and mentor me through how to treat bears speech therapy and his hearing loss, how to treat Goose's struggle with spelling. And that that caregiver approach and why a caregiver should be leading the team, I this to me is what sets feeding matters apart. So Jacqueline, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, for sure, because it is. And it's something that's at the heart of our organization. You know, we were founded by Shannon Goldwater, a mom to triplets. And we were led for so many years by Chris Lynn, a CEO, who was a mom to a child with PFD. And so it's in our makeup. And, you know, for a while we wondered, you know, how can we move this field forward if parents aren't at the same side of the table as professionals? And I think we've finally figured out that this is the value of our organization. And, this is the most important thing that we need to be sharing about interprofessional practice because feeding is something that parents have to execute. You can't run away from your therapy because it's every single mealtime that it's going to come up, whether it's in your mind or in your practice. And so for us, parents and caregivers are at the heart of this and they need to always be at the table and they need to be at more tables, frankly. And so that's what we really have a vested interest in. And so from our organization's perspective, we feel like we are the bridge and and hopefully that that welcoming place for both professionals and families to come and to collaborate and to work with each other and to learn how to work with each other. It's like having any other discipline on your team. You've got to learn how to work with them and what's the best strategies to do so. And so we do offer things specifically for each different, you know, if you're a family or if you're a professional. And so one of the things that we do offer families is we have many different family support services. Our flagship family support service is our Power of Two program. And that's what you mentioned a little bit earlier. And this is just a huge value, I feel like, to families. But essentially, you know, as all of you West Feeding Therapists know this, 
families have heard it all. They've heard from grandparents. Oh, let me feed them. I'll, you know, just give them chocolate or give them to me for a weekend and I'll get them to eat. All these things <clears throat> that just you feel, uh, it's just adds and piles on to everything that a family is already feeling when they're going through this. And so the Power of Two program has a new parent who calls us, emails us, fills out a form and says, okay, what do you need as a new parent? And let me connect you to a parent who is similar in your journey and who can listen to you from a place of understanding, who can empower you to know that you are the advocate for your child's care and who can give you the access to resources and information that you may not know is out there. And so it truly is that person who can relate to you and understands like nobody else who can hold your hand and walk alongside you in this journey. They can brainstorm with you if you would like that. They can just be your sounding board if you need that. And it's kind of choose your own adventure based on every journey is different. Like some families need one session with a coach. Other families, you know, they've been with their coach for six months and now they're just amazing BFFs. And that's just an incredible story. And so our Power of Two program is a beautiful alignment of how, you know, this community can support each other. And so that's a program that we are incredibly proud of and really recommend to anybody who has and supports families who are going through this, because as often as you can be there for them as feeding therapists, it's a different type of support that a parent can give them who has been there before and has that type of role on the team for them too. So I got to do a thank you. Y'all know her, but my very dear friend, Dr. Tessa Gonzalez, and Tessa has been on the podcast. She's been very open about this. I introduced her to y'all to volunteer because at the end of the day, we have to recognize that the child's goal, our goal is fed, is fed, is fed, is fed, is fed, whether that be completely oral or pleasure feeds orally and or whether that be, hey, they're safe and they're hydrated and they're 100% J-tube fed, right? Every child's end goal is unique to their journey, their medical etiologies, and their comorbidities. And there will be changes according to their conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get so hung up on every kid has to eat completely by mouth, but that's not necessarily it. And Tessa has, she volunteers with the power of two, and she has single-handedly changed two mommies that I work with, she gave them that hope that a feeding tube was the best decision for our family. And it lifted the other mommies up so that they felt comfortable and they had a safe place to ask questions about it. And so Tessa, I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Michelle, I don't know. She's not just giving back to families. She is also giving back to all of us as professionals as well with her role in pre-con, she's organizing our family panel for this year's pre-conference educational event. And so she is responsible for bringing together a group of families to sit on a panel that will be the center of discussion during our pre-conference where we're focusing on interprofessional collaboration and competency. So she just serves in every, I feel like in every aspect <laughs> of her life. Yes. So what that really means is that Tessa, I owe you sushi sake <laughs> and karaoke night. <laughs> whoop, whoop. 
And so does Cindy Matters. I will fly to Arizona for sushi, sake, and karaoke. (laughs) Actually, that sounds like a really good idea. idea. I digress. But there's also, y'all have a great screening tool that I like to use for my families because it makes PFD not feel so scary. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the resources. We do offer many different resources on our website, feedingmatters.org. The infant and child feeding questionnaire is, it kind of looks in two forms. So there's the online version that's a longer form version that really guides a parent or caregiver, whoever's filling it out through anticipatory guidance, and it does adjust for prematurity. And then because it's been through two phases of research, we've really identified six questions that work to identify a pediatric feeding disorder. And so it shows a high sensitivity and specificity for identifying PFD. And those six questions, we've now developed a rack card that allow you to take this rack card and bring it to someone. And I love that, not Michelle, that it is, it's less scary because you know, any family going through this, it can be a little bit challenging to hear, you know, this big disorder is coming. And that that's one of the, the different things now having PFD. But if we're just talking about mealtimes, and we just walk through these six questions, and the last question being, you know, based on these questions, are you worried about feeding? I think it helps a family feel more comfortable and really gets them on the right foot in terms of, of feeling better about learning more about this. And it really can be used in any practice area. That's what I think is is so nice about the tool. It's so approachable, regardless of your profession on, or if you're sitting on the professional side or you're sitting on the caregiver side or you're somewhere in the middle. Because I use it as part of my discharge planning checklist. Or I just have my rec cards printed out and I give it to all my families and say, if you're ever feeling stress, look at these questions, take this to your pediatrician so that they're getting something in hand when they're leaving the NICU. Cause we know that's always a, that is such a challenging transition. Anytime you're going from a high level of care back into your own home and having the resources available. So if you're listening, may I give a couple of suggestions? One, if you are part of an early intervention team, I would give the suggestion that as part of your patient intake, regardless of whether or not they come in with a PFD referral, it's six questions. Cast the net, ask the questions because people don't even, when you're down deep in the muck and the mire and you're just trying to survive, you may not even realize that hey, you're feeling this way because it is a struggle to eat, but you're so focused on seizure management or the family so focused on maybe they have another child with additional needs, right? So I always recommend embedding that in patient intake. Just recently, South Carolina adopted pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. I can't talk, y'all. This is why I treat swallowing. Pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders as being within the school-based clinician's scope of practice for 3 to 21 within the LEA, which is profound. Thank you, Angie Neal, for making us better. That's the South Carolina Department of Ed lead SLP. And one of the tools that they embedded was the rat card. They put this in as part of their initial screen so that when children exit early intervention and they're coming into an LEA, they ask, 
those six questions, that was one of the recommendations was to be able to catch them because to quote Kristen West, Kristen, we love you. Just because you're going to public school does not mean that your PFD stops, right? It goes with you wherever. So it's free, it's available, it's evidence-based, and it allows for the crucial conversation to be held with the caregiver on this is the next step. So, yep, highly recommend. Michelle, and I love that. And what I would like to share with anybody who is taking that through their early intervention program is please leverage us and reach out to us, whether you've already achieved getting that integrated into early intervention or you're looking to do so. You know, what we like to do at Feeding Matters, because we feel like we are connectors, is be able to take things like what's happening in South Carolina and share that with others or vice versa. You know, Arizona itself proved the questionnaire as a clinical informed opinion assessment tool. And so if we can shout any of those wins to help other early intervention programs get further along in how they look at feeding, we'd love to help that way too. Yes. And as soon as we get the green light from Angie, y'all, the school policy for South Carolina will be, she's sharing that with y'all for free, right? Like that's, that'll be like one of the free tools that people can access. So take the work. Yeah. Take the work and run it and reach out to Angie. She's brilliant. Also, my favorite part of this is that Angie's known around the world for her dyslexia speech sound disorder in our treatment. So the fact that a dyslexia SLP embrace PFD is just like, I love that. (laughs) That's just the greatest thing ever. Okay. What about team building? Kyler, the OT, the OT on the team. What's the why? Oh, fantastic. You know, and earlier you had asked about like the alphabet soup and why we need every discipline represented on our team. And I just, this is such a passion area of mine because I have been so lucky to have mentors from every discipline. I have a physical therapy mentor that has taught me so much about motor systems and I'm certified in a specialized handling technique. And then I've learned so much from my SLP counterparts, and we work collaboratively with feeding. But I think, well, first, just to kind of like address the elephant in the room, there tends to be, you know, some concerns of encroachment on practice on either side when you are sharing an area of responsibility. And I don't think that's just unique to OTs and SLPs. I see it happen all the time in the medical community as well. I'm in the NICU and we have specialists that can come in and contribute to our team. And sometimes that is welcomed and other times maybe it's that kind of collaboration has a bit of an interpersonal barrier, we could say. So it's not just us, guys. This is happening everywhere, but we sure can be a model and a testament of why it's so important to work together. So OTs do have feeding, eating, and swallowing including included in our scope of practice It's actually part of our ACOAT standards. So, you know, those standards that you have to achieve, your academic institution has to achieve in order for you to be an accredited program. SLP, that's our CASA standards. That's the equivalent of ours. Ours are CASA knowledge and skills acquisitions. Sorry, Kylie. No. So OT is in the same boat and we do have to have diagnostic competency in all areas of eating and swallowing, including instrumentation. So including our swallow studies and our fee studies and those sorts of things. And then it's recognized that that requires a higher level of of study and education. But sometimes people aren't aware that it's included in the scope. And I have to tell you, sometimes the OTs aren't even aware that that is included in their scope because it's very dependent on what institution you're graduating from. 
of whether or not that's a focus of education and that's, you know, something that your faculty is really championing. So it's a big continuum of understanding of what our scope is. But like in a nutshell, OT really was built off of interprofessional collaboration principles. That's really, it's the core of the discipline. And if someone's to ask me, like, what is an OT? It's basically, it's a practitioner who's directed to use therapeutic everyday activities or your occupation in order to enhance a person's participation. And so it's super broad, which is why you'll find your OTs, you know, like sprinkled around different specialty areas, whether it's feeding and swallowing, like myself, you know, I do my diagnostics and swallow studies and I work on advancing swallow initiatives within my group, or you're talking to, you're in a different group of practice. Perhaps you're in, you're in neuro and you're working on the traumatic brain injury floor, or you're working in oncology, or you're working with progressive disease. They're just sprinkled everywhere. And I think that's such a benefit because we can bring that voice of what is the context? If you've worked with any OT, they're constantly asking, well, what does the family think? And where do they have to do this? And what is the context of this? And how do they need to interact with the environment? And what's important in every like moment in time? And so by having that person part of your team, they can contribute their unique focus of practice because all of our kids are, you know, holistic beings. If we're not treating our families holistically, then we sure are likely to miss something that could be important. So we've talked in other episodes and we have one coming up next month with Ed Bice. Ed Bice is a, he's a speech pathologist that specializes in adult swallows, but he's also adjunct faculty at a couple of universities. And he talks about why swallowing competency is a struggle to teach in SLP curriculum. And Erin, you're going to have to throw your thoughts in here. But um, one of the things he touches on is how historically we have faculty members teaching dysphagia that only treat adults such that they don't treat pediatrics. So they're not firsthand aware of it. And if you're not firsthand aware of clinically what it looks like to work with PFD and PED swallowing, then you're also not going to be aware of the role of the OT on. So you don't even get to teach that within the framework of your class. So SLPs as a whole are coming out the gate, not knowing. I mean, Erin, is that a fair statement? Hi. Also, I'm so sorry. I'm here. I had a wonderful collaborative interprofessional meeting for a patient that was beautiful and made me so happy because we were all in the same room for once and I wasn't playing phone tag with everyone. And that's how we should be doing care, but we don't always have the time. So hi, I'm happy to be here. I think, well, Michelle, you touched on, and this is something that I struggle with as a speech pathologist. I always say that I'm like the most OT type speech pathologist that you can get because yeah, you are. <laughs> speech is very top down. We have mm-hmm. our you know, big nine. And so we learn these very specific skills and we learn swallowing in a similar way. But I feel, and Kyler, correct me if I'm wrong, like OT, the way you do task analysis, like it's much more bottom up and you always have to do both. I mean, we're going to have children with their individual differences that have 
strengths in certain areas and we're working more bottom up in other areas. But I think that's where it becomes difficult, Michelle, because yes, we learn swallowing, but you cannot just treat swallowing. You have to look at everything else. And so it starts from that top-down process, but that's where I think students come out of grad school and they feel lost because they don't have the skill set and the knowledge to be able to look at everything else because you have to. That's such a good point. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Michelle, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, were you taught about the SLPs role in grad school? Were you taught how to engage in IPP? That's a question that I've always wondered. Like, what is that covered in OT school? Well, at my I mean, you went to a killer OT school, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> I, I have to admit, like, I props out to University of Texas, bleeding orange as well. So, I understand your love of your school. I really came from a great program because it was part of the medical school. And so, everybody was on campus together. And we start with gross anatomy where we do a full three-month immersion with our own cadaver, and we partner with a few of the medical students as well as dental. So we do top to tail. I mean, we do the entire deep dissection for ANP, and then everything we do is built from there. And we have classes throughout. I was part of a three-years master's program. And we have classes throughout where we're with the different disciplines, like, you know, our physiology classes with the medical school and, you know, different people and different disciplines in the medical community were brought into those classes. But I have often been told, oh, you're that person that's always saying, but why? And I work with like, she, I consider her my, like my work wife, you know, I have a SLP friend. We worked collaboratively together and we got to oh, so such a wonderful work environment because we were able to co-treat and co-assess for inpatient acute. And we did our swallows together. And we got this reputation in our community that we're always like, oh, those are those girls that are always asking why. And that's a back to the OT model is like looking at MOHO or how we do activity analysis. We are taught in our curriculum to analyze, 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 dissect it down to the the smallest level of ANP, physiology, medical impairment, and build your way all the way up to the top level, which is participation in the community, sense of self, your role, you know, those sorts of things. So when I look at swallowing, I often start with motor evaluation and I'll do the general movements assessment from my neonates. I will do the AIMS, the Alberta, if a child is coming in inpatient. And I first look, of course, you always interview the family and get an understanding of what's going on. But if I'm like trying to dissect what's going on and could impact that child's pharyngeal safety, I start with a global motor assessment, a developmental assessment, standardized testing, and then work my way systematically through before I even get to a feeding trial. And so that might be a really nice collaboration between the disciplines, particularly if you don't have a physical therapist with you. That's a really nice partnership between our SLPs and OTs. So Jesse Ginsburg is the SLP that has sensory-based SLP, and she has a program for SLPs. Just in, We've had her on, and she's lovely. And that's one thing that for... Me, I am 
gray-haired with all the Botox and enough dye to color up most of the gray. But we were not taught that we could engage in that. That was not part, which is crazy. And the neurodiversity affirming movement, like Erin has mentored me in this. She's my mentor because I'm 39, y'all. Grad school was way long time ago, but we have to stay continually learning. And so if you're a gray-haired, Botoxed, middle-aged lady and you're in the learning process, just remember, y'all, just because it wasn't covered isn't grad school doesn't mean that it doesn't fall within our scope of practice. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be engaging with it now. We should be stepping up and learning. And if that means make a younger, fabulous friend your mentor so that you can grow or like Kyler was talking about, pull a colleague from a different field to mentor you, that's necessary. Otherwise, we are not fully providing best practice. And wait, I had one other thought. If you haven't checked it out yet, the family-guided routines-based interview for early intervention, you can download one for free. It's a questionnaire that we can go through. We start with the moment that mama, daddy, grandparent, aunt, uncle, big sister, caregiver opens their eyes, foster parent, adoptive parent. From the moment they open their eyes all the way through to the end of the day, when they close their eyes for bed and you break down, where is their communication feeding, swallowing breakdown and how can we plug in? And then after we fill it out in our clinic, we actually have rounds on Wednesdays and we present the rounds and talk about it with our OTs. Hey, this was the concern. They really struggle with breakfast in the morning. Okay. Why are we struggling with breakfast in the morning? Well, part of it is positioning at the table, self-feeding, and then the OTs break it down just like you were talking about, Kyler. And then I'm like, okay, well, here's where we can plug in this for language. And here's where, you know, we can talk about like this adaptive cup or, or those things, but the Aaron, they well, no, I, Kyler, I love the way that you described that and how we have to shift in the way that we look at our patients and make it less about this is where I fit and more about what does this child need? Because we're not knocking speech pathology education at all. We all have work to do constantly in everything that we do. I mean, and Michelle and I are people that will always look at what needs to be better. That's just who we are. That's why we're here. But I have found personally, I, and Michelle is talking about sensory, you know, I've been educating myself a lot on that because a child needs to be regulated to learn and eat and do all the things of life. And it forced me to shift in a different viewpoint of mealtime in general. I'm now becoming floor time certified and all these things that a child needs to do to engage in mealtime and what we're actually asking them to do from even just purely an engagement standpoint, I think OTs are really great at saying, let's take a step back holistically and look at their overall motor, their overall sensory, their overall, you know, how they're experiencing this mealtime. And I've taken more of a step back and being like, okay, what do I need to do to actually get them to the table? Do we need to take a step back and just engage with me outside of the table? Maybe bring like things like that. But I've learned that from my OT colleagues. And I also have a work wife that I collaborate with all the time who's an OT. 
And it just is so wonderful to step outside and have someone else's perspective and learn and grow and realize that the way that we serve our patients better is by all of us coming together. If the OT has worked with speech pathologists and incorporates, you know, more language and into those sessions. And I've worked and learned from the OT and incorporate more sensory strategies. This child, just they're getting more and that's only going to help them. And even just going down to the basic conversations that you have, right, with your colleagues when you're collaborating and co-treating with a child. I am always looking at, you know, the physiological process. And I have a colleague that really focuses on bringing, she's just so skilled in recognizing where that caregiver is that day how they're showing up that day, how they're feeling. And she's really focused on their emotional state. And she'll share information with me of like, this is what's going on in their lives. This is how they're feeling this day. And we have that dynamic. And I tell you, collaboratively, then we can just deliver better care because it's all about like what's important to the family. And without, sometimes we have a limited bandwidth as well. You know, kids are complex. Families are complex. So even that, even from just the emotional level, the benefit of collaborating with another person. And that kind of leads me to a question that I have actually outside looking into the three of you in your clinical work is all three of you seem like great collaborators and have that soft skill of being able to practice interprofessionally. And I guess my question is, did the three of you just learn that on your own? How was that taught in any schooling that you've did, done in your previous history or what? Because I think in team building in any sense, clinical or not, it's that soft skill, that ability to talk human to human outside of discipline, outside of anything else that I think can matter, especially in this type of scenario. Honestly, for me, it was my upbringing. That was not covered. Counseling and how to hold crucial conversations was not covered in grad school. My dad always raised us to seek to understand because you only know the narrative that you have created in your head. And that's powerful. If all I know is the narrative that I'm telling myself, then I don't understand the other person's point of view. And my very first rehab manager, Sean Schwarting, we called him boss man. He was huge, dude. He was a PT as big as the door. He had us read Crucial Conversations. And I was a CF reading Crucial Conversations. And that was profound because that made me think, I mean, like, how do I recognize conversational breakdown amongst colleagues? And then how do I fix it? And they, bless them, the OT and the PTs just pulled me in. So... Wait, Kyler, Aaron, what are y'all thinking? That's so funny that you bring up that book because I have brought that up at Feeding Matters as well because we are, <laughs> you know, uh, Jacqueline is just an innovative leader and leads us in a horizontal like leadership model. And so we are a trust, you know, our team is run on trust and being able to have those conversations is so key. And at another organization I work for, we would do a book study and that was one of our books was crucial conversation. So I yeah, I benefited in leadership training and the different jobs I've done. But in regards to what the question Jacqueline was asking, it is part of the model for our assessment is to look at, and we have to do self-reflection and look at how we're using therapeutic sense of self or use of self with our OT models. So that it is part of our curriculum, but I can guarantee you 
I don't feel like anyone's getting enough of it. I really don't. We had a counseling course in grad school and I also have a psychology degree. So I think that helps me read the room. I always <laughs> would tell Michelle, cause I just remember being her. I love, she's great at it, but she comes in like a firecracker and, so, <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I'd see a parent, they, their eyes would get so big. <laughs> but I think also it takes, I think where some people struggle is you have to build your own emotional intelligence and give yourself grace because there's always going to be breakdowns in communication. And some of the best relationships I've built with other professionals in the community came out of a miscommunication. We both had grace with each other and were able to have a conversation and learn because you always say you grow your relationships sometimes through conflict. That's how you have those conversations of how you communicate and they learn about you. But I know when I come across people I work with who have a harder time understanding why they do things, it makes it more difficult because that you become a little more defensive sometimes, reasonably so. But taking, I'm starting the ASHA leadership program and the first quiz they have you take is on educational intelligence because I think that's so important for leadership so that you understand. And floor time actually was really helpful for me with that because you look at your own individual differences. Why does this trigger me? Why am I having this response? How do I best use, like you said, Kyler, my therapeutic sense of self to with this child, with this family, with this organization? So I think that's important to focus on if this is a goal for you. Jacqueline, I want to hear your answer. Yeah, my answer is I think... In nonprofit work, it probably was a little bit more of a focus in school than I would say most traditional schooling where you are focused on actually the thing that you're going to school for, because a lot of nonprofit management is all about relationships. But that doesn't mean, you know, you, you learned it in school and you're done and you, you wash your hands of it. I think it's a continuous journey. And so I think Aaron has such a great point of learning yourself first and kind of what you don't know about yourself can come off in a conversation and in a conversation and then surprise the other person. And then you're completely unaware of it because you didn't even recognize it in yourself. And I think for me, that's been one of my biggest learning lessons across my career has been, how am I coming to this conversation or, you know, what meaning am I assigning to something that's not even there? And I think especially in conversations where, you know, you care so much about what the outcome looks like, whether that's the care for a child or in a lot of my conversations, bigger system stuff where it's it's more than one individual child. Um, and so it can feel less tangible, I think, sometimes in conversations when you're talking about systems and organizations, and that can be difficult and it can be tension filled. And so I just try to listen and have grace and try to understand and not assume any sort of meaning because I think assumptions get us into trouble sometimes. And I'm continuously learning this, but it's, it's still a work in progress. But that's been my latest, like, aha, at least in the last few years. Okay, wait. So I just have a question. Do y'all get questions from caregivers posed to y'all on how do I better communicate with my team and tell them what I want? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. So what feedback do y'all provide that we as practitioners need to know? Oh, that's such a good question. We try to provide our families with tools for coming to the table to have informed conversations. There is, you know, the medical community still can feel 
quite hierarchical to a family. Um, yes, it can in the South. Good Lord Almighty, because I have boobs, I don't have a brain. Yes. Again, for the people in the back. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> and, and they might not feel that they have a right to have an opinion or have a voice. So we really work diligently on advocating for their right to have a voice and that they enforcing that they are the person that knows this child the best. They are the expert in the room. They are the true expert on the child. And honestly, they're the one person that matters, right? We see this happen quite a bit in acute care where we as a team can feed an infant and an infant may have full volumes and it doesn't matter a hill of beans unless the family can do it. So we have different resources that we share with our families to first inform them on what is pediatric feeding disorder and what empower them within their role as the expert for their child. And those resources are just multifaceted. And I would say as well as the resources and that kind of empowerment, one of the biggest questions we ask is, do you feel heard and listened to? By your provider? Because I think the answer to that question tells us everything that we need to know. You know, it's not that we advise a second opinion a lot of times, but if they're not being heard, we just try to encourage them to think like, what would it be like to have a provider that makes you feel heard or that listens to you? I feel like if you as a provider are approaching a conversation with the goal and outcome of that conversation being, I want this family to feel heard. I think that's a a major step in the right direction. Yes. But that's the purpose of the pre-con right? Yes. Yes. What's so unique about pre-con is that we're bringing together the professional side and the family side into a shared platform where the family's voice is the one that will be heard. And so professionals will be engaging in this dialogue as they're listening and hopefully digesting the stories that the families are sharing. Cause when we kind of talk about like, well, what are the tools? Like, what do we need to even start this journey of an improved interprofessional collaboration and bringing the family's voice forward? I personally feel like the first step is just awareness, awareness that collaboration matters, that the family's voice matters and awareness of what, how, what we do can impact them and impact their lives. So pre-con is an opportunity for us to like really embrace the core competencies of interprofessional practice and focus on one in particular. We're going to be talking about our soft skills and communication soft skills. And, And throughout the educational event, it is going to be, we're going to use case study. We're going to have family stories share. There's going to be recorded videos. Michelle, you're going to talk and share uh, your perspective in a family. And I hope people really, I know I'm so looking forward to it because every time I hear one person's story, I learn something. Oh, they always make me cry. I mean, they're so good, but I mean, well, it doesn't take much to make me cry. So let's preface that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think one thing I think about and one thing I've been focusing a lot on recently is Feeding is so much of a relationship and that starts from the NICU and that starts, that creates this bond with caregiver and child and with family. And so we have to remember as providers that this is really about healing that relationship. And there's a lot of steps to get there. 
but it needs to be that family's journey as well, because this is how they want to feed their child. And this is how they want to experience mealtime as a family. And yes, these children are have a pediatric feeding disorder for a multitude of reasons within those four domains, but that's really what's most important. We Food is memories and it's duly coded by all of these experiences that we have. And that's, I mean, yes, it nourishes us and it's so important for growth and development, but that's when we can really see that relationship heal because if families are coming, you know, defeating matters are coming to us, it's because that relationship is broken for many reasons. And that's so important. You know, feeding so unique because it is, like you said, it's completely relationship-based. It is dependent. You know, our little ones are dependent on us as the caregiver for feeding. And so if we're only working with one aspect, only working with the child, that's not our client. You know, our client is the parent, is the caregiver of the child. I feel like, you know, I have, uh, I'm an IBCLC, so International Board for Lactation, And that really opened my eyes and I think did a major gut check for me that this is not about what I am capable of doing with this child. Because when you're working with lactation, unless I'm latching the baby, (laughs) which is really inappropriate, (laughs) I am not the feeder. And so you have to take us, you have to only work through the dyad, you only, you know, just through the caregiver. And it definitely helps changed my practice overall with feeding. Jacqueline, I would love to know going off of this and talking about pre-con, like what are some of these upcoming initiatives that Feeding Matters has and, and what can we do to help? I mean, I know there's so many things that you guys have going, but what are some things you want people to know about? Yep, for sure. Well, definitely attend the conference and pre-con especially because we are diving into this in a deeper way than I think you can get at a traditional conference with sessions. But right after conference, we roll into Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month, the month of May, which is, it's our fourth annual. So it's so incredibly exciting to be able to have a month solely dedicated to pediatric feeding disorder. And then that month is also so many other months. It's got Food Allergy Awareness Week. So there's a lot of almost the comorbidities that exist in the PFD world are also a part of that month too, which we really think is special and a great chance to advocate for how important this disorder is to just to be a household name and for people to know what this is. And so I encourage everybody to be prepared in May, follow us on social, share, because you never know when you share anything about PFD or any of the signs with your circle of influence, how that could reach any one individual. And if you reach one individual that didn't know about PFD, that is a win for PFD Awareness Month. And so that's definitely one way to celebrate the month. Another way is we have official PFD Awareness merch out. So I encourage you to go get, uh, hopefully we made them some fun t-shirts this year, but we've got three different types of t-shirts that you're able to buy for PFD Awareness Month. And just kind of follow along the journey throughout the month. We're looking to tell stories. We're looking to interact with others. If you want to interact with us, please let us know. We're so open to collaboration in that sense. And we have many other things that are happening at Feeding Matters. And a lot of it will be announced at the conference. So I'm excited to hear everybody's thoughts at the conference. But one of the things that I think is a huge theme for us, especially at this conference and as we continue out after it is how we're integrating parents and caregivers more into any space of PFD and what does that look like in education, but also what does that look like in research? 
you know, what outcomes matter to families. And so I think that's a little bit about some of our, our future things. But I think PFD awareness being the next big thing after the conference is what I'd like to leave you all with. Oh, Jacqueline, can I just mention the app? Yes, you can, oh, Tyler. Okay. <laughs> Wait, there's an app? <laughs> this has been like a, a dream of ours for a while, but we're going to have an app and I'm, I'm so excited about it. It's launching at conference. It will be, it's completely free. It is free to anyone who wants to have, go into like have a, a deeper conversation with a group of people that have like a shared focus on collaborating about PFD, learning more about PFD and uniting the community. And what I love about it is that it is for professionals and for families, but you'll also have, so we'll have a, a group where everyone is on the group together, but we'll also have a group that's just for families so that they can be open and transparent, you know, with other persons in the same situation. And then we also will have a group that's just for professionals so that I hope people feel comfortable and we're going to work diligently on extending our culture into app so that people understand that this is a safe space and a respected space. And you can ask your case questions and you can talk about your challenges and you'll just be in an environment of support and mutual respect. So that is launching at conference and we'll share more information about it at pre-con as well as conference. So that's really exciting too. I love how you said that. I just like hopped on the app store. It was like, oh my God, I got to download it and it's not there, but I'll pretend to be patient. (laughs) We'll send it to you. You can help us be a test group. How about that? Yay! I like how I say yay, but then I'm like secretly, Aaron, can you like guide me through the app? Okay, so for those of you that are listening that are involved in your state associations, they also have PFD proclamations. So you can collaborate with your state association vice president for governmental affairs and your state association lobbyist and work to get a proclamation for PFD month to be officially recognized within your state, which is a great way of educating IPP members, including physicians that, hey, this is a thing. And then Jacqueline, I have one last question. As my grandma says, said technically, sometimes folks have a little bit of love money lying around. That's what she would call love money or mad money. depends on what kind of mood she was in. But if somebody wanted to make a donation, say they got a little bit of love money lying around, how could they donate their that or even their time with Feeding Matters? Well, we, a little love money goes a long way. And what we try to do is we steward anyone's dollars as well as their volunteer time in a way that is meaningful to meet our mission of advancing the field for pediatric feeding disorder to ignite research, advance early identification, enhance collaborative care. And so I think if you do have an interest in supporting this mission and really helping to achieve a world where children with pediatric feeding disorder will thrive, I hope you join us and join us in whatever way is meaningful to you. That could be volunteering with us and you are certainly welcome to reach out on our website. There is a space to to enter in as a volunteer and to really get incorporated into our volunteer efforts. We have many different areas based on how much time you have to give. But, you know, we also do need financial commitments too. And so if you are interested in donating to Feeding Matters, you can text GIVE or DONATE to 
That's 602-975-3669. And you can just say donate or give and we'll text you something that shares our donation link. And we do really try to make sure that we are stewarding our funds appropriately. And it is solely used to support families, to support professionals, and to advance this field. And thank you for anyone who does donate time and even just supporting us. I mean, liking a Facebook post or commenting on something is support in and of itself too. So thank you to all of our supporters out there. Beautiful. So wait, Erin, did you have any last questions, love? I don't think so. Okay. Do y'all have any final thoughts? Anything else? I would just say, I hope that we get to continue the conversation. And I think the more that we can come together and talk and discuss, it's just going to benefit our families and our clients. And I hope as many people as possible join this conversation and really dive in deep in pre-con. We see you in Feeding Matters. Jacqueline, Kyler, thank you so much for joining Aaron and I today. This is everybody knows how much we love y'all <laughs> but like yay go team folks please be sure to check feeding matters out on instagram because they share exciting news there and uplifting positive stories and tools y'all have a facebook page website you can always check aaron and i out on the first bite podcast facebook page or first bite podcast instagram account we love it when you log into your Apple podcast, hit us up with a positive, joyful review. As always, we've got Chasing the Swallow, Truth Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders available on Amazon for and with Speech Therapy PD for 13, 13 and a half hours of active continuing education as well. Erin, I think I remembered all of the things I'm supposed to say. Go team. But everybody, thank you. Thank you for starting with us. Thank you for spending time with us. And remember to breathe. Productivity and everything is cracked up to be. And please remember that we're here to guide and build up and empower the caregiver for their child's journey. So thank you for spending today with us. Thank you. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies.